What also happened there was a murder, a two-year-old little girl wandering around the park without any adult with her, uh, stabbings, and unfortunately, a lot of very, very challenging situations. Well, that's King County Council member Jean Cole Wells talking about some of the alarming details regarding City Hall Park just outside the King County Courthouse, also laying some groundwork, really, for a public hearing this week where we will hear plenty of people sounding off about transferring this park to King County ownership. We're going to discuss that, plus a new transportation director, possibly, for the city of Seattle, dealing with a backlog of sexual assault cases for the Seattle Police Department, and so much more. That's what's coming up this week on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel, and the views expressed here are my own. And I am joined right now by none other than David Croman of the Seattle Times. David, ferry boat madness over this past week. You had a boat crashing into the Fauntleroy dock, the captain resigning. What the ferry is going on here? Let me know. I, I know. I know. It's a little, um, it's got some intrigue to it. I, I don't know. We're still trying to figure out exactly what happened, but um, I'm sure there will be more to come in the, in the days and weeks ahead. Ooh, wow. Watch out. Blood in the water. I can't wait for the headline. We'll see what happens there. Thank you, David, as always, for joining me. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to City Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast right on the first floor of City Hall there. And thanks also to our patrons. A huge shout out to Rob with a very generous gift to the podcast. Thank you, intern Rob. Going to get a photo from you later on. He is supporting the show above the $10 level, which earns him a Seattle News Views and Brews coffee mug. You can get one, too. We'll feature your mug shot on the show. Patrons, just send in that photo to seattlenewsviewsandbrews at gmail.com. Spell out all those words. I believe in you. This week, Lily sent in a beautiful summertime shot with bubbles blowing in the background. Lily, I love it. Thank you so much for sending that in and thank you for supporting the show. So everybody, why can't you be more like Lily? If you listen, please become a patron at any level. That's Seattle News Views and Brews on Patreon. Finally, thank you to Converge Media. The video of the podcast airs on Converge Wednesday evenings at 7. All right, let's fire it up with right here, right now. Well, hello, August. Here we go. Make sure you get out and vote in the primaries. We're going to check out on the uh, aftermath next week with what's happening there. And thank you, listeners, for the feedback on keeping the audio clean on the podcast. Constant work in progress there. Thanks also for the note about the Seattle Redistricting Commission. They have a retreat this week to look at some new maps. We will definitely keep an eye on that process. But I wanted to start, David, with City Hall Park. There's a public hearing this week within the Public Assets and Homelessness Committee for City Council there talking about what's happening here, this idea to transfer the park to county ownership. It's right outside the county courthouse, so the county would transfer a few other land parcels to the city as part of a land swap. I know we've touched on this issue before, but I'm really interested in what we're going to hear in this public hearing. Homelessness, of course, is the issue that is front and center and the public safety issues that surround that. And David, I guess I'm trying to figure out, is there a case to be made for this park to remain as a city property, it seems like thus far the city and county are fairly supportive of making this happen. What do you think? I mean, there's, I guess, some logic to it just because it it, it really, um, the, the concerns around public safety down there are really focused on the courthouse and the, yeah. the county buildings, as you'd mentioned. And so, yeah. I, you know, I think there's a certain amount of logic to transferring it to, to the county. Um, you know, as far as an argument in favor of keeping it in the city, um, you know, I the the city lately has been kind of the one leading a lot of these 
big outreach efforts to, to parks like Woodland Park yep. uh, and, and other public spaces where there have been a lot of homeless encampments and sort of partnering with local organizations to do a lot of outreach and try and get those people into housing and have, have actually done that in City Hall. Um, so, you know, I suppose I, I don't know if the transfer would prevent the city from continuing to do that. But, yeah. you know, I suppose there's there's an argument that, um, you know, the, the, this new this strategy that that people like Councilmember Lewis are, are touting of just mm-hmm. kind of intense, prolonged outreach right. before you do a, before you kind of um, make people leave the camp. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I suppose that keeping it in city hands perhaps could make that easier. Yeah. I, I don't know, though. Um I'm sure the county would would be okay with the city doing work in their park also. So Sure, sure. And I, I mean, think about it. The King County Regional Homelessness Authority is supposed to be the governing agency that's trying to bring all the dis- this different effort together around homelessness. So that's part of the puzzle, too. And I, I did want to point out, I, I think it's important to point out, a public hearing is happening here after a lot of pressure from advocates not to rush this process. For background here, folks, city and county leaders have been talking about this space since 2017, working on activating it. The pandemic ended up pushing resources elsewhere, and now here we are. But we had this report from the county executive's office in January of 2021. And I think after that came out, there was a lot of concern that the space would not remain a public park. Jean Cole Wells has said, she said it in the council meeting, this will remain a park in perpetuity. I, I, as I understand it, there may be some language the council needs to clean up to ensure that's exactly what's written in the deal. But David, you brought this up. We've watched challenges like this unfold at places like Ballard Commons in the city of Seattle here, still gated off, waiting to reopen. How does the county or any agency build back better when it comes to a public park here? It's not like our homelessness crisis is over or COVID. We're not done with that either. No. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the million million dollar question. And and this is a particularly, you know, it's challenging in any park um, because because it really comes down to to space. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this this preferred outreach mechanism to these kind of hotspot parks now is this sort of prolonged, intense outreach. You, yeah. you try and get, you, you know, you take as much time as you need. You try and get as many people into housing as you can. But sure, the, it, that's that's good in theory. And when there is space for people to go, it works. Right. But mm-hmm. the question being, how much space is there for people to to land is, yeah. is always perennially uh, out there. I think this this area too is is perhaps maybe a little bit more challenging than. Um, even Ballard or mm. Woodland Park, because it yeah, is, yeah. It, you know, it's it's in that area where there's, you know, the DESC shelter. And, yep. um, a lot of know, resources the, in there, you bet. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, it is, um, as, as you would expect, um, you know, a lot of folks head down there to, to get those resources. And, mm-hmm. and so then it's, you know, distinguishing between, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of the folks are just there, like spending their time, their lunch break, and in, in the sure, same way right. I would use that park. So, sort of, who, who is allowed in that park and who is not is right. uh, really a hairy question, and and really gets at the heart of a lot of this um, these complicated kind of uh, issues of, of public uh, camping and and parks and things like that. Right, right. It's not there's going to be some gate out there where people are asking, are you homeless or not? I mean, that's yeah, not sure. the way the public parks work. And I, I wonder how that's going to be un, unfurled here in terms of trying to make this into an activated park where perhaps camping, etc., would uh, certainly not be encouraged. And, and how do you do that? I, I'm very interested to see how the county is going to do that. Very interested to see what advocates are going to be saying over the next couple of days here with regard to this. But some big decisions ahead for the city and county when it comes to this. All right. I wanted to make sure I touched on that. And I think a related issue here, David, is trying to activate more areas of the downtown space. And we're hearing a lot more about this this week from the mayor. He is talking about 
working with the Seattle Office of Economic Development, OED there, investing nearly $2 million in coronavirus local fiscal recovery funding, as he's calling it, in the Commercial Tenant Improvement Fund. Basically, he's doing this through an open application process. You put in the grant application there. These small businesses could get up to $100,000 to build out commercial spaces, make commercial improvements, and make these projects more affordable, located within Seattle city limits. I just look at this, David, and I wanted to bring it up because it seems like the mayor is trying to bring back business, uh, bring them back online as, as quickly as he can. What impact do you think these different type of grant programs might have on different businesses around our area? This, Yeah, it's a little confusing to me. I, I don't understand exactly how this works because, yeah. um, you know, I know that the, the state explicitly forbids gifts of public funds to right. private entities, which is at least from city money, um, yeah. you know, and it, which is a, a thing that has come up a lot. The, the best example I can think of is when they were redoing 23rd Avenue. I think it was 2016 or something like that. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of concerns about uh, the construction impacts on the businesses there. And, right. And, you know, it came up a lot where you know this, the city is pretty limited in how much it can just sort of fork over yeah. to these businesses to help mm-hmm. them stay. Where, it, where they can kind of use some of this money is in some of this uh, peripheral support. Uh, and then also, I, I think if if they can find federal dollars to do right. it, you can give more direct funding. So I don't. I mean, where this money is coming from and, and how it's going to help these businesses, I'd be curious to see. You know, we know that for Mayor Mayor Harrell, it's a clearly a big priority to kind of try and oh yeah, zhuzh uh, up uh, downtown, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Uh, which which we have seen him do via you know we've we've heard him kind of push a little harder for city employees to come back into the mm-hmm. office. Um, yeah, sure. The city employees have countered saying the only reason you're doing this is because you are trying to bring business downtown, which yeah. might not be untrue. No, uh, no, there's some truth to that. Obviously it's a big priority for mayor Ho to, mm-hmm. to bring back downtown, but like he's, he's kind of paddling upstream to a certain extent because mm. uh, it really depends on our people going to come back to the office. And so far the answer is basically no. Yeah, not yet. That's for sure. This really dovetails with some other ideas here. He's working on providing a dashboard to show the public where the COVID dollars are going for the city of Seattle. And also this effort he's pushing again to bring back businesses. And this is all over the city called Seattle Restored. And I thought this was interesting because initially we heard about this a couple of months ago. The mayor was saying, hey, these businesses that are vacant downtown, How about some other people come in? Maybe not a traditional business that we'd have here, but we want to make sure we're filling these spaces. Here's some dollars to help make that happen. Now he's talking about expanding that into other neighborhoods as well. So this really strikes it in relief for me, David, that it's not just a downtown issue. This is something that's happening in neighborhood business districts all over the city of Seattle. They're all trying to recover here. Yes, downtown's important, but I think there are some neighborhoods that could use some help here as well. Yeah, I I agree. Um, In in some ways, it, it feels um, like City Hall's here role here, though, is, is as I was saying before, a little bit window dressing to okay. uh, much larger forces that will kind of dictate how, how That's what fair. the city looks like. Um, yeah. a- again, uh, the Downtown Seattle Association a few months ago was predicting 70% return to the office by the end of the summer. And I, I, I don't think it has budged a an ounce from then when it was 30%. I think it's still yeah. about 30% vacancy. And so, right. you know, I, I think that w- what we have heard more of, though, is um, some acknowledgement of that and questions about, okay, so how do we, and I think this goes to what the mayor is is talking about, is yeah, yeah. how do we kind of rethink these spaces so that, uh, you know, something like downtown is not a place where, less less of a place where 
people come in from other neighborhoods or even mm-hmm. other cities to mm-hmm. visit and spend some time. How do you kind of turn it more into a neighborhood yeah. or an arts district where sure. either A, you have a, a reason to be there other than going into the office mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. B, you live down there and you right. use it as you would in a neighborhood. And, you know, at least anecdotally, while downtown businesses, I think, are still probably having a hard time, you know, you hear about restaurants on Capitol Hill and stuff. Oh, and, yeah. You know, I've got I've got family who um, they actually sell oysters to businesses, uh, restaurants in, around Seattle. And oh, there we go. Their business is, their business is booming. You know, they're, they're so a lot of these rest neighborhood restaurants are actually doing okay. Um, okay. Okay. And I think it's because, you know, people are just not going as far from where they live anymore. They work from that home could, and they, yeah, they sure. just walk out their door and go to the restaurant. And certainly uh, happened in West Seattle with the pandemic and the bridge closure. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's a fascinating question that, that you can kind of get into 5,000 foot yeah. view on pretty quickly of mm-hmm. uh, w- what is Seattle? I mean, w- what is its identity and is it mm-hmm. going to be kind of more neighborhood focused and yeah. less of a central downtown hub that people come into? That is a great question. And, and we'll see what these dollars do. Will they make a difference downtown? Will they make a difference in other neighborhoods too? It's a very open question. I, I thank you for bringing up that 5,000 foot level, David. I, that even felt like 10,000 to me. You took, yeah. a, took a nice jump back there. Uh, I did want to point out, there's plenty of uh, other stuff on the city council's docket this week. They're talking about repealing the hazard pay ordinance. They're talking about those caps on food app delivery services. So ton going on here. We discussed these before. The full council is approving those this week. But I wanted to move to another very important issue here. Seattle has a new SDOT director that the city council is in the process of approving. What do you need to know about this candidate the mayor Harold picked? We're going to break it down here on Now Hear This. Well, Seattle has a new candidate to lead the Seattle Department of Transportation, Greg Spots, selected by Mayor Bruce Harrell. Now, Spots has been with the Los Angeles Bureau of Street Services for the past 10 years, now known as Streets LA. Mayor Harrell was highlighting Spots' work in equity, community outreach, and climate change. And Spots said he's going to be traveling all over the city over the next few weeks to tout these ideas. But he got some advice from a member of the mayor's senior staff about this. Here's what he had to say. When I met senior deputy mayor Monisha Harrell, she told me it's not a campaign unless you wear out a pair of shoes. Well, I intend to wear out a pair of shoes, walking, biking and riding transit with Seattleites, asking residents to show me what's working and what needs improvement. Well, I'm sure he's going to get an earful from a lot of people about what needs improvement. But, David, I wanted to ask you this. You interviewed Greg Spots recently about this. What did you come away with in terms of how he's going to respond on the multitude of transportation challenges in the city? He's got to work on a ballot proposal. He's got to figure out how to interact with Sound Transit. There's a lot of things on the list. West Seattle Bridge. I mean, you name it. What, what was he saying to you? This this selection, I thought, I, I don't want to say I was surprised, because, mm. uh, b- but it's interesting because I think on the campaign trail, I, th- I think in the kind of world of like urbanism and people who are strongly kind of pedestrian and bike advocates and sort of advocates for thinking of transportation more holistically and not just about cars. Not car centric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those folks were, um, I think, a little bit concerned about Mayor Harold because at one point, at least in the debate, he had said something about how, you know, we can't forget about cars and, we need, you know, that needs to be part of the conversation. And mm-hmm. and then comes Greg Spots and, and his history is actually really, I, I would say it's about as kind of urbanist focus as I've ever heard from an SDOT director. I mean, he's pretty explicit about uh, transportation departments can no longer be kind of that that vision of the 1950s master plan community. It's no, no longer just about fostering commutes via cars that really right. transportation departments are 
need to be thinking about who is using the, the, the streets and how and how mm-hmm. do you share that space and and even kind of dipping into um, questions about zoning and, and yeah. sort of urban planning and and how that impacts transportation and and you know what you know the one of the first things he brought up was uh, the vision zero goals right. have not been met uh, for pedestrian and bike death so it, it was it surprised me in two ways which is um, he really brought, I thought, his own kind of perspective and priorities to this in a way that mm-hmm. sometimes when there's a there's a new director nominated, they basically say, "I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the mayor's the, person." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm here at the at the pleasure of the mayor, and I yep, yep, yep. carry out his or her vision dutifully. He, he had a fairly clear viewpoint that I thought came through that seemed to live independently of Mayor Harold's viewpoint, hmm. which I thought was interesting, and just his focus. He, you know, he didn't talk that much about cars he really only talked about bikes and pedestrians and safety and things like that and mm-hmm. um, really took this uh, again very holistic view of transportation in a way that um, I, I think having having followed mayor Harrell on the campaign campaign trail is is why I say I, I'm a little bit surprised by this but yeah um, yeah you know I think for for a lot of people who probably didn't vote for mayor Harrell I think uh, are, are feeling pleasantly surprised by this choice. I would agree with that. And I wonder if this is at least in part a response to what the city council has been pressuring for when it comes to Vision Zero over the past several months here. I really see that pressure from the council and from the from the surrounding neighborhoods here to really ramp up this safety issue, Aaron. So I'm bringing this up because the council has to do this review over the next couple of weeks of Greg Spots as a candidate. What's going to happen there? Does his candidacy fly through or what what do you think that process is going to be like i haven't found any kind of major uh red flags or anything yeah. that would suggest that his his nomination is going to be held up um mm. you know i'm sure council member peterson who's the chair of the committee will have some tough questions for him sure. but you know his his kind of vision seems to align i would say with a lot of what i've heard from members of the council um, yeah. the fact that he was his nomination came on one of, or maybe the second hottest day of the year, um, also seemed to kind of fit in because in LA, he launched this big sort of, um, or at least kind of oversaw this big kind of cooling, you know, painting, painting streets in a way that didn't reflect back as much heat and planting a lot of trees. And, you know, I think with the the heat dome of last year and the recent heat wave we just had, there has been a lot of conversation about equity when it comes to who who gets hit the hardest during heat waves and yeah. you know we basically know the answer to that which is yeah, yeah. Um, poorer and communities of color and, and so the fact that he has done this work in LA and is being introduced as it's hitting 90 degrees yeah. i think that also is um, probably not a coincidence it's also something that i think probably a lot of members of the council um, will will appreciate but yeah. you know we'll, yeah. we'll see you know things always come up in in nomination of course, and we'll see what those are. Yeah, certainly is talking a lot about climate change, and that and that'll be an important piece of it, I think, from the council's perspective too. One last bit on this: is there something in your mind, just looking at whatever candidate tackles this job? What is that top priority? Is it figuring out the move Seattle levy, or what do you think is the top top priority for whoever comes in on this job? I mean, I think there are there's the sort of um, large scale top priority, which I would say is probably. Um, safety in fact he said that's his top priority is safety Uh, Mm -hmm. but as far as like a specific priority you know the move seattle is fairly specific because it ends at 20 in 2024 and so they're gonna have to get and and you know if if they're gonna run a campaign on this it really begins january 1st 2024 so i guess he's got a year and a bit year and a half to, to write this package 
I, I think they're going to want to be pretty specific after last time when right. Um, it, it just did through specific. on a lot of promises. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I would, I would think that would be, you know, he's not like day one. He has to start getting yeah. on that, but you know, maybe second or third month. Which yeah. Yeah. They even understands like, uh, you know, the neighborhoods and the streets. I, I would think that he would start having those conversations pretty early. Yeah. He's going to hear about it on day one. And if he is confirmed there and we'll see what happens with that whole process, but the West Seattle bridge will open. It looks like in September here at some point. So he'll have a uh, lot to talk about there too. So thank you for breaking down that piece with me. I wanted to talk about one more issue that the mayor has been talking about a lot over this past week an executive order to the SPD that all sexual assault felonies with the proper amount of evidence, he says, be assigned to detectives by the end of August. Now, advocates, as we know, have been pushing for this for months, even longer than that, actually, but definitely for months after this memo that was published by the Seattle Times and KUOW that showed SPD stopped investigating most new sex assault cases involving adults this year. I'm wondering, though, David, what this really means, because the SPD's staffing issues haven't magically gone away. And I'm not sure if all these cases will actually get assigned. I, I, I'm just trying to figure out what's going to happen here. What do you? What happens next? I, I mean, I think what happens next is the the police department is going to have to make some some choices about who's doing what and where. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I you're right. I don't think this magically this does not magically solve any staffing shortages. But what it is doing is saying, uh, I understand there are sh- staffing shortages and. Also, you need to prioritize these, and yeah, so it's kind of an pressure on for sure. Yeah, yeah, it, it's setting the priority in a pretty specific way. I I doubt the police department is happy about this because um, you know they they have countered in, to the story that you know this is a staffing issue and you can't just shift people around. That it's, it requires specialized training to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, again, I think it's sort of a the, the mayor has recognized um, that this is a highly sensitive and important topic um, that a lot of people are not getting the, the sort of due diligence and justice that they, they deserve and right. has decided that this should, should take priority over possibly some other things. And what those yeah. other things are, I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. No, it, it is interesting to watch this because I think you would hear, hear from advocates that even before the pandemic, this was an issue. A lot of victims right. coming forward and cases not getting investigated. And that has really dropped off uh, during the pandemic here over the past several years as the SPD has lost officers. I wonder if it becomes part of the case that the SPD is going to make when it comes to and the mayor is going to make when it comes to, hey, police need more funding. If we're really going to get honest about making sure we're investigating these cases involving sexual assault, we're going to need some more dollars. We're going to need some more officers and more money for training. I, I feel like that might all come together here too, David. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. Um, you know, the, the challenge is uh, even if even if they have the money, can they actually get the people? Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, we, we have seen this and talked about this before, but police departments are competing fairly stringently and especially for you know a detective a specialized uh, yeah mm-hmm. somebody who's specialized and in theory has because you you don't just hire someone as a detective no um, no you people end up detectives after being officers or patrol officers for a while so yeah right um, you know i i do think it's it's a decent question about whether or not you know wh- where you get more people to to do that um but you know, I mean, I think there's sometimes there's, there are times for nuance and there are times for uh, yeah. let's get it done down and saying, let's mm-hmm. get it done. And in this yeah. case, you know, when you're talking about sexual assault cases, clearly 
it, it's if these cases are not even being assigned, that is yeah. comes across as a pretty serious abdication of uh, some of the basic duties of a, you would think of a law enforcement agency. Absolutely true. And we can see the mayor reacting to that too. Well, thanks for breaking that down with me, David. All right. Well, up next, we all know that sharing is caring, but car sharing, at least in some Seattle neighborhoods, well, they don't care for it much at all. David's got the story on transportation talk. David, I thought you had a fascinating piece in the Seattle Times about car sharing. We're not talking about the Zipcar app that a lot of people are familiar with, but peer-to-peer car sharing, as it's called, through an app called Turo. Now, most people who serve on as hosts on Turo, and I'm reading this from your article here, own only one or two cars, but some people are treating this more like a business, and that's made for a few ruffled feathers in the neighborhoods here. What's happening? Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, so this this model, people call it the kind of Airbnb of cars. I think mm, that's right. the fastest way of, of describing it, which is yeah. when it came on, came around and, you know, it just, 2010 Toro came on and then in Seattle it showed up in 2012. So it's not actually that new, but when it showed up, it was in the same way that Airbnb started as, hey, you can rent out your room to, to a traveler for cheap or whatever. Mm-hmm. The same way it was this model of, hey, you've got this car, it probably sits idle for most of the time you can make a couple extra bucks by renting it out or if someone needs a truck and you've got a truck you know you don't have to ask a friend to to help you move and yeah for years that really was kind of the the driving force behind this but um sort of organically a few people you know especially around 2017 2018 started to figure out that they could actually make pretty good money doing this and started buying up cars to do more than just their extra uh, underused vehicle mm-hmm. um, and then in in just the last year Toro in particular there, there are two of these companies Turo and Get Around I mm. focus more on Turo because it's bigger and has been around longer but yeah. Turo in particular has has kind of recognized that hey we can actually make a lot more money and become a lot more professionalized based off of these sort of professional hosts these people are yeah. actually intentionally buying cars in order to rent them Yep, and, and they have also not coincidentally recently filed to go public on Wall Street to become a publicly yeah. traded company. And so right. they have actually made an intentional shift just in the last year to encourage people to do this kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. um, we've seen pretty massive increases in the number of hosts who are buying up large numbers of cars and renting yeah. them out. And at least so far appear to be making pretty good money mm-hmm. doing, it. doing it. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a very interesting shift. It feels like we're kind of in that limbo period that maybe Airbnb was in maybe six or seven years ago when it mm-hmm. was transitioning into this kind of more professionalized hotel industry. Um, right. Of course, with that comes some conflict. You know that. Uh, yeah. So there's this one guy that that I talked to for a while. He lives in Laurelhurst and he has all yeah. his car. His neighbors are basically pissed off at him. Um, sure for parking these cars around the neighborhood. The city investigated and found he wasn't actually breaking any rules. I think the neighbors would kind of counter that, well, then the rules should change. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think uh, there's something also particularly salient about it because it's in one of Seattle's fanciest neighborhoods, Laurelhurst. Yeah, go figure. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, I think think there's the kind of small-scale question around these neighbor-to-neighbor conflict. But then, to me, in some ways, the more interesting part is this larger-scale uh, economy that appears to be building mm-hmm. around this peer-to-peer car sharing that that really while other modes of transportation got hurt during the pandemic this actually this, was really helped by the pandemic because people wanted their own cars to be able to get out of town for a few days and so yeah. um you know I, I i would be i will be very curious to see if 
like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, uh, it, it becomes bigger and bigger business in the next few years. And then how a city like Seattle reacts and starts uh, thinking about regulating it. Yeah, so many different things to think about. Car sharing, automated cars. I mean, there's a lot of different pieces of regulation that uh, the city needs to look at from a transportation perspective. But David, thank you for breaking that down. We need to wrap up the show here and a quick check of your eagle eye on gas prices here. I think you've seen this and I have too. They're coming down, but not as quickly in some areas as compared to others. What are you seeing there? What's going on? Yeah, it, it just strikes me that, uh, you know, before you, there'd be maybe a 50 cent variation between gas stations, mm-hmm. depending on where you are. But I'm seeing more and more, you know, I think the the biggest difference I saw, I, I tweeted this, was the Suquamish Indian Reservation near where I live. They have gas at 425. And then I took wow. the ferry into Edmonds and there was a gas station on the other side there that had gas at 540. So that's a dollar wow. 20 yeah. difference or so. And, and it seems like gas stations, some gas stations are eager to drop their prices as the price of oil comes down, while others seem to be kind of holding out a little bit longer and seeing if wow. they can keep selling the, <laughs> the gas at yeah. that price. So, yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But, man, I got to take a trip over that reservation at some point, if only to see that on a sign that gas yeah. only costs 425 So thank you, as always, David. Thanks to everybody listening. It's Seattle News, Views, and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is on all the major platforms. Once again, if you are a listener, please, please support the show on Patreon. Always appreciate it. Thanks for watching on Converge, too. See you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2022.